So we look to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. As we begin the chapter, I do want to read all the verses for you. We will focus our time together this morning on verses 1 to 3. And then the next time we're together, we will look at uh, verses 4 uh, to 7 or around there. But let's look this morning at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And uh, we'll read it in the New American Standard Bible uh, translation. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. May God bless the reading of his word. When we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 to 3, we're looking at... A text that still deals with the central conflict that I believe permeates most of First Corinthians as a whole and also is a conflict that Paul is trying to resolve. And I think to this point, he has employed several different ways in which he wants to resolve that conflict. But I've simply entitled this sermon Motivated by Love, Motivated by Love, because that is what Paul is dealing with as it relates to this particular context. It is our motivation for what we do. The text before us deals specifically with the excellence of love, the excellence of love in this way, the excellence of love to eliminate division. So it's the excellency of love to eliminate division because that's what Paul is trying to correct overall in the lives of the people in the Corinthian church. But also, he wants them to employ love to maintain, uh, I'm sorry, to maintain true Christian unity with respect to the spiritual gifts. So he wants them to employ love so that they can maintain true Christian unity with respect to the spiritual gifts. It is why before he defines what the gifts are, he defines how to use them. He defines who are the recipients of the gifts. He defines overall who is the source of the gifts, namely the Holy Spirit, uh, functioning completely and cooperatively together with Father and Son to employ the gifts in the life of the church and to distribute them as he wills. But 
it is that love in its most excellent superior motive it's the driving force behind practicing the gifts that's what paul is about to explain in the verses before us what he is not saying is that love replaces the gifts love does not replace the gifts love does not replace the need to practice the gifts or measure or test the gifts so he's not saying that love excels in such a way beyond those things that they're no longer of use to the church. And I'm speaking to a particular ideology that wants to set love against proper practice and proper theological thinking and all the things that God has commanded us to do. Uh, the idea that, especially as the holidays are surrounding us and you're with family members who may not know and love the Lord Jesus, that their ideology is love absent of conflict or truth or careful thinking. But that's not what Paul is saying. He's not saying love one another and you get to not do anything else. What he's saying is that love helps us to practice the gifts according to God's design. So he says that is the most excellent way. It's not enough to simply love and it's not enough to simply practice the gifts. You must love so that you're practicing the gifts in a way that God has designed. Here then, as we look at the first couple of verses this morning, and as we introduce kind of just a, a soft outline approach to what this chapter is really about, here then, love in the first few verses, as you look at those first couple of verses, is explained as superior in its excellency. And it's explained that way to best build up the body of Christ. And what Paul does is he explains different permissible hypothetical scenarios demonstrating why love is proper action tied to proper motive. I'll say it again. Paul explains the best way to build up the body of Christ. He provides hypothetical scenarios demonstrating why love is proper action tied to proper motive, tied to God's motive and intended action toward others in the church. So God is certainly concerned that what we do, we do in love, that what we do, we do for the love of the body of Christ, for the love of his honor, loving him. But driving the driving force should be love for one another. When you look at verses four to seven, Paul outlines what love is and what love is not. He outlines how love should function as he writes to them. And then how love ought not to function. Lastly, then, as you look at this and we begin to wrap this particular chapter up, Paul explains the excellency of love, the efficacy of love, meaning its effectiveness and the consistency of love as one matures in the perseverance of the saints. So that love is consistent in the heart of those who truly belong to the Lord and who truly have fellowship in Christ. That the Christian is known for many things, but what Paul gets to is the Christian is known by their love, by their love for one another, their love for Christ and how that functions, not simply in word, but in deed. But first, you and I, we look at the first part that I mentioned. We look at love explained 
as superior in its excellency to build up the body of Christ through these hypothetical scenarios. And I'll explain why I'm calling them that, uh, because I do believe that that is uh, the basis upon which Paul establishes the point of love, love's excellence first. Paul began to explain for the purpose of showing why love should be the chief motive of practicing the spiritual gifts and even fellowshipping together. He explains some things that he envisions that would help us establish that. Look at verse one. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. So you'll notice here and you'll notice later in verse five, love never allows or enables us to accomplish God's will apart from his revealed will. Love does not use or perform unrighteousness in order to ensure righteousness. So love does not force us in a direction that would be unrighteous, that would be against God's will, against his word. And simply because we say we love somebody and we want to achieve some motive for them or some outcome for them, that we can employ whatever that means is. That's not what love is, and that's not how Paul defines it. And that's essentially Paul would be guilty of doing the same thing that he tried to correct in the factions. Rather, where Paul first began, he began with this notion. It is this, that if one practices things, even things which are deemed beneficial to others, or even to those in the Lord's church, and the motive is not love, then they have done nothing at all. Say that again. If one practices things, even things which are deemed beneficial to others, or even to those in the Lord's church, and the motive is not love. I'm talking about the motive, because true love is love in action. If the motive is not love, then they have done nothing. They've done nothing at all. No matter how religious they sound, no matter how beautiful they sing, no matter how righteous they appear in their performance, if they are not motivated by love, they have nullified everything that they've done. They've done nothing. This then shows us something that I think is very important for you and I. It shows us how the essence of true Christianity should be. Paul is getting to the essence of true Christianity. There's not factions, there's not partiality. There's not anger. There's not unrighteousness. There's not competition. There's not hero worship, personality of cults. There's love. There's love for one another. That sounds so strange because so many don't practice that. And it's impossible for the world to practice that. It is why I say the Christians are known for their love. A love that is not birthed in them and a love that's not sourced in them, but a love that is formed fully in them by them being born again. All these terms that you see today about being other-centered or caring for others doesn't get close enough. It doesn't get close enough. Instead, what Paul is highlighting here is something that I want you to really think about. It is that we must be about others but we must be about them 
with the motive of love toward them in Christ Jesus. Or else we're just preaching utilitarianism. We're just preaching the common good is the greatest good that we can achieve, but there's a lot of pragmatism involved in that. That we're all just about doing what it takes, but we can have a certain situational ethics. That we're all doing what it takes, but if you're angered or treated poorly, well, at least the body of Christ is well taken care of. That is not what Paul is saying. In fact, that's characteristics of the factions. It is that we must be about others and we must be about them with the motive of love toward them in Christ Jesus. That's what it means to truly serve others in the context of fellowship in the Lord's church. Well, why am I saying this? Because so much of Christianity confessing today, they're doing what the factions did. So much of what they do, they're doing apparent religious deeds, but they do not do what they do from a motive of love. They're not doing what they do because they love you. They're not doing what they do because they love Christ who purchased you. This is not what the Lord commends. And so Paul is saying, this is not what he commends in Corinth. In Corinth, you have to understand, with their factions, they had activity. They had followers. People were drawn to the factions. That's why they had to make four of them. But what they did not have is a love for one another that was something that would be motivating people toward honoring one another in Christ. You'll see he still, yes, entreats them as brothers in the Lord, but you'll see that if they don't anchor themselves to what he's saying, then they will sail away into apostasy and welcoming false teachers and becoming skeptical and suspicious of Paul himself. I'll tell you what he wants from them. What Paul wants the Corinthians to do is he wants them to purpose their actions with the motive to perform the action in love. He wants everything they do toward one another to be justifiable on the basis of God's love. But it's also why he doesn't just leave us there. He defines love for us. He tells us here's what love is. Here's what love is not. Here's what love does in its orientation to God's truth. Here's what love does not do in its orientation to God's truth. So you can't just tell people to love one another and not give them God's will for love. Because there's enough of that today. Where people say, oh, you should just love them. And it simply means you have to put down your Bible and close it and just try to invoke some emotion toward people. That's not what the Word of God teaches. But also the Word of God doesn't teach you have your Bible open, you do religious things with a formalism that has nothing to do with love and compassion toward those whom God has purchased. It's amazing as we step back from this. I think if you were to put this book into a place of where would I consider this related to systematic theology, where you begin to systematize theological thoughts, I would say that this is very heavy in the area of anthropology, study of man. But I would say this more so. 
that is very much not only centered in anthropology, but it's also centered in the fact of God's attributes. Because it's teaching you who God is, specifically. And so, I think as we look at this, I do believe it will encourage you. That you're going to find that God is who he says he is, and his truth is what it says it is. But also the motive that God wants for us is exactly stated plainly and defined for us. Let's look at verse 1. When Paul comes to this, as you study this text and you look at it, he begins in a place that is certainly a conditional thought. He says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. It is not Paul's emphasis as this chapter opens up for us to debate whether there are tongues or languages. It's really what they're known as. Tongues of men we can speak or the languages of angels. However, I do believe that we have to deal with that because many to their own shame have confused this first verse to the detriment of Paul's entire point. My explanation that I will provide for you this morning is to recapture the divine author's intended meaning in its context, to help melt away the distractions that so many have brought to this text to take away from Paul's chief point. His point is, we must be motivated by love to serve one another. I tell you that this is a hypothetical scenario first because of the way that it's phrased in the grammar. In verse 1, Paul leads in what we call a conditional statement. Normally, it's if then. If this, then this. In the Greek language, and you can get a sense of this even in the English, but in the Greek language, you have markers, words that show you. Grammatical markers that show you, oh, this is what Paul means versus saying it this way. This is one of those occasions. Here, you have the word if paired with a verb, which is an action word, in what is known as the, the subjunctive mood. Subjunctive mood is a sense of should or oughtness. And when that takes place, this grammatical marker, if appearing to be a certain way in a sentence, paired with this verb in this particular tense or mood, you then have a phrase that is either future or hypothetical. In this case, you have to look at the context and say, is what Paul referring to a future occasion? Or is he referring to something hypothetical to bring emphasis to a literal point? The point here is not for Paul to introduce the tongue of angels. It's not the point. Or to have us distinguish between the tongues of angels and the tongues of men. Rather, keeping his point in, in firm view, the point is to emphasize the supremacy of love as a motive to exercise the spiritual gifts. That's his point. The supremacy of love as a motive to exercise the spiritual gifts. Rather than simply exercising the gifts devoid of love. Let me pause here. 
Many do come to this text and say, well, there must be a prayer language to angels, a tongue of angels, and all the rest. Don't believe that's what Paul is saying. I believe that the whole construction is certainly one of a hypothetical scenario. A hypothetical scenario that is employing hyperbole. What you understand to be, I am so hungry, I can eat a horse. Don't bring me a horse. I won't eat it. I'm telling you I'm so hungry, I would, I would much rather like a large meal. Paul is going to employ that part of, uh, that, uh, part of speech here. But also, I believe that even if you want to go down the pathway of assuming or thinking that there's a language of angels or an angelic language, if in this case that is true, it wouldn't matter whether we could speak it or not, because later on in 2 Corinthians, Paul says it's unlawful to speak about that which occurs in the third heavenly realm. So Paul is caught up in the visions. And we'll go over this much later on when we get to Second Corinthians. But he deals with all the things that take place behind the veil of our temporal existence. And he pierces that. He actually goes up to be there 14 years prior to when he wrote what he said, if I'm not mistaken. And he says, I went there, I saw what I saw, and I didn't author a book. I didn't come back from it and secure interviews on all the local whatever, news, philosophical schools. I didn't talk about my experience in heaven. Instead, I saw what I saw, and it is unlawful to repeat what I saw. It is prohibited from the Supreme One Himself, God Almighty. So it's why here I believe that Paul just moves on. He moves on. But essentially he's saying, even if you could speak in the languages of men, or if you could speak this angelic language, and if you did it without love, you've done nothing. That's the point. But I would say he's not trying to capture and envision a tongue of angels. If there is an angelic language that is spoken, it is certainly prohibited for us to repeat it. Prohibited for us to speak it and even debate matters concerning it. And that's coming from Paul the Apostle himself. I believe it's in 2 Corinthians 12. You may check me on that if you like. So I want you to just be clear to that point that this text isn't about to give you or yield a 12 part sermon on the tongues of angels because Paul moves on. And because of the construction, it is very hypothetical what he's saying. He's saying if this were the case, if this were the example, if this were even possible, if you did all of that without love, you'd be doing nothing. That's the point. And I would say those who want to debate that point are what you find. They find themselves in the second part. Uh, verse 1, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Because the point is not to debate the nuances of this. The point is to understand that what you do, what is revealed, what is supposed to be done, had better be done with a motive to love one another. To accomplish what God wills and desires for the operation of that gift. 
So when we look at this, we consider that what Paul is really driving us toward and comparing is true worship versus performance. True worship versus performance. Genuineness versus disingenuity. Already Paul here is starting his argument that will flow through this text. I'll repeat it again. It is better to have love and practice what God requires toward others than to neglect love and practice what God requires out of a sense of mere duty and formalism. It's better to practice what he requires than to have love. When he says the brass sounding or clanging cymbal, there sounds without order or beauty. You're taking that which is beautiful and introducing chaos to it. Wouldn't that be the same of practicing gifts without love? You're taking that which God intended and without love, it's disorderly, it's chaotic. But the goal is not to simply, when you think of these instruments that he introduces in making his point, the goal is not simply to make a sound when you think about playing an instrument. The goal is to make an orderly, coherent, and beautiful musical composition. That's the goal. When you pick up the instruments, the goal is to make a sound that is unified. Majestic, pleasing. That is Paul's point. Coherency is Paul's point as well. A great argument against employing any of these without coherence, understanding. So it is with love as both the practice and motive of the gifts in operation. Paul says without love, the gifts are chaotic, disorderly. They have no purpose because they're not used for the purpose intended. They're not used from the source intended. It's why so much of what we see in religion today is just business. It's just cold business. There's no true love. There's no compassion. There's no heart. It's just business. But that's not what Paul envisions. Because guess what? They were already doing that in court. Chloe's people already told him, they're just doing business here. And Paul says, no, we're not going to do it that way because that's not what God intended. So let me show you, let me write you a letter and explain to you how you're supposed to fellowship, how you're supposed to care for one another so that it doesn't just become business. Verse 2. The same condition that I explained grammatically for you to give you an understanding, to provoke further study, perhaps. Verse two, Paul here goes to the same condition. OK, there's three conditions. He's still dealing with a hypothetical condition. He is not envisioning in verse two that one would possess all these things. Look at verse two. If I have the gift of prophecy. Yes, yeah, suppose someone could have that gift. But he says, and know all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, hyperbole, but do not have love, I am nothing. 
So this is the issue. It's not that he's saying that one possesses all of these things. He's already contended and argued against that in the previous chapter. He's already said, we all don't have all of these gifts. However, he is not envisioning, as I've said, that all possesses the full extent of these gifts. He's not saying that all have extensive prophet, uh, prophecy. He's not saying that all have all faith so as to remove mountains or even some have it. Rather, he is saying hypothetically that if one were to possess the fullest extent of all these gifts and their functions and to do so with true love as the motivation behind the practice Namely, the love of Christ. To not do that would then to be doing nothing at all. It is not simply to have nothing. But it is to mean that you are nothing. It's not simply that you have nothing. It's that you are nothing. Paul says it that way. He says, if I have all these things and I do not have love, look at what he says. He doesn't say, I'm not doing anything. He says, I am nothing. I'm nothing. You see here the importance of doing things with a motivation for God's love. He says, you are nothing if you do it the other way. For what are we really if we do not act as we do based on the love of Christ to us and flowing through us, what are we really? We're nothing. If we just show up and we just gather here just because we have carved out this time. And for so many that flock together just because it's become a tradition. But if they do not do what they do for the love of Christ flowing through them. And to them, they are nothing. It's not only that they're doing nothing. They are nothing. And I'll tell you this. The goal in Paul's argument is not some hypothetical attempt to seek to possess the fullest extent of the gifts. He's not saying desire these gifts to their fullest extent. Or even that that is possible. Again, earlier in chapter 12, Paul already indicated not all persons possess all the gifts. Not all persons possess all the gifts. Instead, he is arguing that love as the motive behind the gift is greater than possessing or practicing the gift in the absence of love. He's arguing that love as the motive behind the gift is greater than possessing or practicing the gift in the absence of love. This was indeed the problem for the Corinthians. This was their problem. A problem that Paul was trying to help them solve. But it was their problem. That they were not absent of religious duty. They were not absent of doing things that were sometimes justifiably biblical, so to speak. Yeah, they were doing a form of the Lord's Supper. Yeah, they were practicing a form of spiritual gifts. 
But not only did they lack definition behind those things, they lacked the motivation to love one another through those things. Remember the partiality that was creeping in during the Lord's Supper? Remember the immorality that was creeping in? Oh, well, sure. Well, we're okay with a guy loving his wife. Well, no, not when there's adultery and idolatry involved in that. They had, they had along the way perverted things. And with that, you had the absence of love and compassion toward one another. They were competing against one another. Paul continues the argument as we look to the final verse that's before us this morning. He continues the argument, but he pushes us in a direction like the others, but it would seemingly be another direction. Look at verse 3. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. He goes to who we are and what we gain or lose. Who we are and what we gain or lose when what we do is void of love. He explains the futility or uselessness of self-sacrifice If one, you do self-sacrifice for pride and boasting. Two, if there's the absence of love in Christ as the motivation behind the act. You can give everything you have away. And it could benefit people who receive what you give. You can surrender and sacrifice yourself on behalf of others. But if those acts are not marked by a Christian love, a Christ-like love, for the body, the individuals, the parts who make up the whole, and also Christ himself, you gain nothing. Again, you are nothing. You've done nothing. I would tell you, this already disqualifies so much of the acts so many make today when they claim it's all for Christ. They say, it's all for Christ. I do this for the Lord. I do this for you. I do this for Christ. And you get within a few feet of them, and you recognize very quickly, they don't love you or him. It's all for nothing. There was no benefit to it. There was no honor for him in it. There was no love for you because of it. And they haven't gained anything eternally for it. It was an empty transaction. Whatever people claim today, because so many are claiming that what they do, they do for Christ. And I think that is a claim that should be made, but I think it's a claim that should be validated. Trust but verify. Really, all that sacrifice and service is for self-praise and boasting in one another. And guess what? It was the same in Corinth. That Paul wrote to them and said, you're doing this for yourselves. I'm trying to teach you to do this for one another. I'm not just teaching you to do it. I'm not teaching you to fake it until you make it. I'm teaching you to do it 
know the motive for what you're doing, and be able to justify what you're doing on the basis of love for Christ. But he doesn't leave them to define and interpret love. He's actually going to show them what love is, how love acts, how love doesn't act, so that they can test if those deeds are done with the love for Christ. This was not to be so for the Corinthians. Paul didn't settle there. He didn't settle for something lower than what God had intended for them. I think Paul goes through these epistles in his life as I'm looking at more of who Paul really is. I think he deeply cares for how people feel, and I think he deeply cares for how people feel about him. But Paul made up his mind that he was going to love them in spite of that. In spite of how they felt about him, in spite of what they impugned about his motives, in spite of what was happening to them, he said, I'm going to love them, but I'm also going to help them define things. And in helping them define things, I'm going to help them to make sure I'm functioning by that standard. He wanted more for them. He wanted more for the Corinthians. There is no benefit or profit in terms of edification, in terms of building one another up. Because some people shrug and say there is a profit for treating people coldly. Yeah, there's financial profit. We see that today. But there's no eternal profit. You you can become very rich and well off from avoiding the things that God tells us to do. It's called the world system. That's not what Paul is aiming for. When he speaks of benefit and profitability, he's talking about things tied to their edification value. Meaning, in God's economy, building someone else up is of greater value than just doing a deed that's transaction. I have to build them up. Paul is comparing... The profitability that they believe is simply performing religious deeds. And today that is, I believe, an epidemic, along with so many other things. But it was in Paul's time as well. And his remedy was to define love, to motivate and spur the Christians on to love. I don't think he sounds different than Jesus. The world you will know you are my disciples if you what? Love one another. What he was helping to form in them was he didn't want them to simply appear holy before others. He didn't want them to fail to abide in the love of Christ toward others. And why? Why? Because what is the goal of the gifts? Well, the goal of of the gifts are to honor Christ by practicing them in love toward one another. It's to build each other up. That's the goal of the spiritual gifts. As Paul has argued for the motive, the next time we're together, verses 4 to 7, we will turn to him defining love for us. We'll go from motive to definition. Let's pray.